The Palm Bar the Background, and made possible thanks to those who donate to the show at thepalmbarthebackground.com and duly the generosity of our corporate sponsors. This is a message from the Japanese government's Ministry of Cultural Accreditation. It must be exhausting being denied your ability to assert your right to have an opinion about Japan. A non-Japanese person living in the country, a Japanese or part Japanese person who's lived overseas for a disqualifying amount of time, or a white guy in his 30s who's never been to Japan but really, really likes Naruto. If you're one of these, then you've probably been telling the other ones that they don't know what they're talking about when it comes to Japan. But what if you could back that up with official government certification that your opinion is valuable? Introducing the Japanese Culture Sommelier Certification Program. Apply now and for just 30,000 yen, the Ministry of Cultural Accreditation will begin an audit of all of your tweets about how Japan uses too much plastic, blog posts about how OLTs aren't respected, and YouTube videos about Japanese convenience stores. You'll score points for things like blanket praise, correcting someone's pronunciation of karaoke, or suggesting that Japan is a unique mix of the traditional and modern. We'll deduct points for things like being a man and saying that Japan is crime-free, being a woman and saying that Japan's nightlife is affordable, or saying that Japanese people never talk about politics just because you don't understand them when they do. If at the end of the audit your cumulative score is high enough, you'll be awarded a certificate that officially allows you to have an opinion. Or you can opt for the 150,000 yen package, in which case we'll just send you the certificate. So get your takes on Japan validated by the people most in touch with the real day-to-day -day authentic Japan, the 80s bubble money hoarding 70-year-olds who own it. Every minute you wait is another eight angry tweets you could have been tweeting, so apply today. Disclaimer, being allowed to have an opinion does not exempt you from being told that your opinion is bad. Hello, Brian, and welcome back to Japan by River Cruise. I'm Bobby Judo. And I'm Ollie Horn. And joining us this week is Tucci Quintella, the Manager of Diversity and Inclusion and Learning and Development at Mercari, a volunteer director of Women Who Code Tokyo, and co-founder of Speaker. Tucci only agreed to be here on the condition that we stop our openly discriminatory treatment of Brian's. We refuse. Tucci, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. On this week's show, the Japanese news media says that cultural barriers with foreigners contribute to the spread of corona. Foreigners disagree and immediately prove their Japanese cultural literacy by flying all the way off of the fucking handle. Tucci's going to tell us how both sides could have avoided this with a little more diversity awareness and cultural sensitivity. You know, things Gaijin care about. Plus, Ali's got your weekly river cruise recommendation. Ali? Yes, this week's recommendation is the Blue Marble Raft River Cruise in Sapporo, which is the first river cruise operator to build an online booking page that has the stories feature. A spokesperson said that despite having absolutely no user demand nor need for a series of circles at the top of the booking page with pictures of other passengers' faces, a project manager had to show that they had shipped something, and that's really all that matters. And in other news, it seems like we have to do this every year, but... The list of the world's most livable cities is out, and Yanagawa didn't make the cut again. Seriously? It rivals Venice in terms of riverboats per capita. How is that not the most important criteria for livability? If you're as angry as we are, you can join our mailing list and sign the petition to recount the vote. But first, Soap Talk. Tucci, you spearhead the women who code Tokyo chapter. I get the impression, particularly after speaking uh, to your friend uh, Jan, who we had previously on the show, that there seems to be a bit of a boom, a bit of an interest in people upskilling, reskilling, and there's a lot of focus on helping women get into tech. 
Yes, definitely. I mean, I think uh, a lot of uh, women are also realizing how big of an opportunity is in tech. Mm. Uh, it's like flexible jobs, high paying. They can get like financial independence uh, pretty like easily to a certain uh, extent. And like like you mentioned, Yan has like a coding boot camp. People can learn and get into the field even if they don't have the background. So mm. it's a pretty big opportunity. And have you found the lockdown has been helpful? That people have kind of had more time to think yeah. about whether the career they're in is actually for them? Definitely. I was going to say, I imagine that coding is one that also really lends itself to remote work. Yeah, definitely the lockdown pushed a lot of people to not only rethink their careers, like Ali said, but to start learning something new. And there's just so many resources out there to learn to code. It was said to me by a friend who's been a software developer for a very, very long time. And now he kind of works on the more kind of architectural, big thinking stuff. That a software developer's job is actually to think and to problem solve rather than actually to like write loads of ones and zeros like you, you know, imagine, right? Like a big green screen, mm -hmm. like in the Matrix. Do you think that there's a difference between the way that men and women think that mean that women have a different approach to software development? Uh, I don't think it's necessarily like men and women, but like people from different backgrounds and different uh, perspectives always think differently. Mm. So they're always going to bring previous experiences uh, into their problem solving strategies, you know, and I think diversity always that's one of the big benefits of having diversity. You have all these different perspectives and you have more creative ways of solving problems. And that's like really, really powerful for software engineers. Yeah, people from different backgrounds really do bring different problem-solving strategies, like Ali and I. Ali uh, is a stand-up comedian, and I am a TV personality. So my approach to problem-solving or like interacting is to try to interview someone like a guest, and Ali's approach is to try to heckle them. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> to, to be as hostile as I can get away with. And then when you combine both, you have a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> it's hostile <laughs> to people. <laughs> So this is something I'm curious about, but um, I get the sense that Japan in a lot of different industries, because of things like the population decline, because of um, you know the aging problem, uh, has to turn more and more to, to non-Japanese people to fill all these different roles in society. And we hear about it a lot on the news in terms of like labor or healthcare mm -hmm. or nursing or things like that. Um, but I'm wondering if you see that at all in the tech industry. Ah, yes, for sure. Tech has been growing everywhere, but especially in Japan, it's in the phase of uh, like what they call digital revolution, where like they're trying to switch more and more into digital services for everything. And Japan has a really big shortage of software engineers. Also, uh, in terms of software engineering, a lot of the cutting edge technologies, documentation, research is all in English. So also Japan is a little behind uh, mm. on catching up with that too. So that makes a lot of uh, uh, Japanese tech companies go look for talent abroad to fulfill this, uh, this shortage, not only in amount of talent, but the, the expertise that they have. It's interesting you mentioned about the language thing, because I had a friend who became the authority on React Native in Japan just because he was the guy that translated the documentation into Japanese for a, for a blog. And I do wonder whether the language barrier is something which is underestimated, because it's not just documentation and learning about standards, but also things like commenting. And also, like, most programming languages have English as their syntax. Like, I have seen there are some programming languages which use kanji, and it's wild to look at. But generally, unless you have some degree of fluency in English, you are going to have a slightly harder time doing any kind of modern software development, right? 
Yes, exactly. Uh, like you said, the the programming languages are most of them uh, the most popular ones based in English uh, uh, vocabulary. And also, um, it's just like the access to information. So uh, a lot of these technologies are community driven. They are like open source. And the communities are all out there communicating in English as the universal language, you know. Um, and when... Uh, you don't speak English or you can't read English, you lose access to all these resources, this like question and answer websites, all the open source libraries with documentation in English. You have like limited access to all that if you can't understand. So you've mentioned these reasons that kind of Japanese companies are forced to turn to a non-Japanese talent pool. And I imagine mm -hmm. that creates a very diverse working environment, which is kind of directly responsible for your current employment, isn't it? Yes, exactly. <laughs> So, so can uh, you walk us through your title uh, at Mercari one more time? Uh, yes, I'm a manager of diversity and inclusion and learning and development at Mercari. And I'm sorry, and learning and development. That's a huge remit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to be fair, it's ma mainly because uh, most companies, including Mercari, don't have a diversity and inclusion team. So the, my team is basically learning and development, but we take care of diversity and inclusion as well. Uh, right. Because... You usually don't have people that are 100% full-time dedicated to diversity and inclusion. It's something that has to be distributed across all functions of the company, but you need someone to be kind of an internal consultant to help other teams to drive these. And efforts. that's you? Yeah, me and I have one more person on my team, yeah. Is that not quite rare to have someone full-time, like an in-house counsel? Uh, yes, but for these positions, it's becoming more and more common. There's something like the chief diversity officer, you know, uh, titles like this are becoming more common. Uh, because you need someone to understand deeply what's going on in your company, especially a lot of sensitive information uh, of the company to drive diversity efforts. And you need someone who is also uh, going to follow your business roadmap as well. Like, where do we need to focus uh, on the diversity efforts? Because it, it can be like super, super broad. So what are the major issues as somebody who works in, in diversity and inclusion training for, for a Japanese corporation? Okay, so when we talk about diversity and inclusion efforts, we usually divide into uh, four different areas. Uh, the first one is attract. How do we attract more diverse talent outreach strategies and mm -hmm. hiring uh, process? The second one is develop. How do we uh, empower these people to uh, work effectively inside the company and grow inside the company? Then retain. How do we make sure that they don't leave mm. uh, or that they like at least uh, they want make to the stay. most out of their... Yeah, they want to stay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the, the fourth one is promote. It's how do we give them visibility given that they are a minority and how do we promote uh, more diversity across the company? Well, the first thing that Japan could do to retain more foreign employees is to give them a visa that didn't require them to leave after three years. <laughs> yeah, that another, would help. Another thing they could do is <laughs> let them in as well. Uh, <laughs> there's also a number of visa holders which wanted to get yeah. back in. Uh, yeah. Well, I think this is, sets up what we want to talk about in the news very nicely. So uh, let's talk about how Japan might handle their relations with foreigners just moderately better by taking a look at this week's news. Bobby Judah, what's in the news this week? I'm going to need just a minute to summarize because there was an all-out Twitter war uh, in the the foreigner living in Japan Twitter sphere this week. And it was about the media's portrayal of foreigners as to blame for spreading the coronavirus. And I want to, to start with the original uh, basis for you know the media picking up this story, which was not that big of a deal. 
there was a government conference about the coronavirus. And as a part of the government conference, they had a very small segment about how to prevent clusters in different communities or how to deal with clusters in different communities. And they, they said very reasonably, if there were to be a foreign community that had a cluster pop up in it, we would have to be sensitive to issues of linguistic differences, language barriers in communicating and containing and dealing with this cluster. They never actually said anything about bunka. They never referred to culture. But they did give an example of, you know, a group of Nepalese students or Nepalese workers who, who might have a cluster. And they used that in their example. So when the media reported on this conference, they focused way more on the issue of foreigners and language barriers. And the media introduced the idea of cultural barriers. And all of these different stations picked up and ran with it as as though the foreign issue was a main focus of this conference, which it was not. And also the truth is there hasn't been such a cluster yet, has there? This was preventative rather than cure. No, I think the only real blip on the radar was, we mentioned this on the show a long time ago, but like a couple of ALTs who got it at the hub. Right. (laughs) But really, that's just good for the hub's branding. It, It hasn't been an issue. And so... The conference itself, I think, was doing the right thing, was saying, you know, if there was an issue with foreigners, we would have to be aware of linguistic differences or cultural differences, which is a good thing for them to be aware of. Yeah, for example, like foreigners have a culture of washing their hands, whereas Japanese people don't. We'll need to be aware of the fact that they're one step ahead. We're we're trying to ameliorate Twitter battles, Ali, not provoke them. Um, Okay. So the media ran with this foreign issue as a main thrust of the conference or a main message and did it in a way that made it seem like they were blaming foreigners for the spread. And foreign foreigners, a certain subsection of the foreigners living in Japan, uh, the ones on Twitter. The happiest ones. <laughs> there was a huge backlash that was all focused on how Japan is xenophobic, Japan is racist, Japan assumes that we don't speak the language, they're scapegoating us, and it blew way up and then kind of had to be walked back in some cases. So the government was not in the wrong, the media was in the wrong, the foreign backlash I think was a little bit overdone. I'm, I'm wondering, Tucci, as somebody who kind of deals with cultural awareness issues and diversity awareness issues... What do you think about the way both sides kind of handled this? So I agree with you. Uh, yeah, the the foreign backlash was a little overdone. Um, and I do think I, I have a, a like a thought provoking question that is also like how much our perception mm. uh, of the foreign backlash is biased by the English speaking community, right? Uh, the majority of foreigners in Japan are not even like uh, Westerners or don't speak English as their right, first right. language. Right. So there could have been a whole other reaction in Chinese and Korean that we don't even know because I at least don't read Chinese or Korean. So yeah, right. Um, That's true. The average foreigner in Japan is a Chinese man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Statistically so like, speaking. So like it's it's also our perception of the foreign backlash, right? Because we read English. Right. Um, and also, like you said, the community that it is uh, on Twitter, and also, do you know that like uh, Twitter? I think uh, the countries that most use Twitter is like U.S., Japan, and Brazil, and like none, no, no other countries really use Twitter. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Well, one thing that I thought was interesting about the the foreign Twitter backlash was that exactly like Tucci's saying, it kind of assumes that foreigners all share 
a same perspective or a same identity. And one of the things that people kept saying was, you know, they're saying we're not culturally, culturally literate. They're saying we're not, you know, linguistically literate. Uh, and we are, and we are. And it's like, well, then maybe they're not talking about you. Yeah, <laughs> right. A, yeah, a, yeah, maybe you're not as culturally literate as you think you are. And B, maybe they're not talking about you. Yeah, I, I see that quite often uh, where especially uh, Westerners will be a little more self-centered. <laughs> Sorry, this is a generalization, but um, in a sense seem, of like... It doesn't seem right to me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and always assume that, uh, yeah, when there's something talking about foreigners... In general, it's like, oh, it's about me. They're talking yeah. about me. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And I do think if uh, if everyone was, was able to practice a little bit more this, like, uh, taking a step back, looking at, at a bigger perspective that is not their own, I think there would be more empathy and maybe, like, not so much backlash and complaining on Twitter. <laughs> mm. But there is a case to be made for the fact that it is common to see Guy Kokujin without any degree of specificity. I mean, if the news it's conference true. said certain types of non-Japanese people or illiterate Japanese people or whatever, then, you know, maybe that would prevent some of the backlash too. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. I think uh, uh, on the other side, like uh, we were saying, uh, what they could have done in the conference or yeah. <laughs> hopefully the media. I mean, yeah, it's the hard media. to say what the Let's media Let's say the media. Because I think it's fair to call out the media for the way they portrayed the subject of the conference, the content of the conference. Yeah, I agree. But... The media is not committed to the truth, you know. The media just want attention and clicks, and you know. Yeah. Uh, so they they will put whatever makes uh, people click more and read the articles, and you know, like uh, get people talking about it, even if it's just a, like a distortion of the reality. Yeah, I'm wondering, as somebody whose day to day work involves kind of like talking to Japanese people about diversity issues, do you think that a lot of times these big diversity mistakes that you know Japanese media organizations or Japanese corporations make are made just because they didn't know that they weren't supposed to do that or say that yeah yeah I think so I think uh, uh, they're not like ill-intentioned uh, they are like out of like be not being aware or just not being sensitive you know it's not a priority to think about all those cases and their priority is to just like release something yeah. And they also might not care about the third order consequences that while for them, they may, they may just be representing a story in a fairly haphanded way. If there's enough exposure to these kind of stories that builds up a kind of impression, then as we know, you know, the smallest nugget of truth can be turned into uh, some kind of like vile, uh, clickbaity, you know, Facebook algorithm pushed nonsense. Mm. This does have real world consequences. I think to my friend who was... Uh, in India, just when the pandemic started. And at that time, there was rumors spreading that the virus was brought into the country by white people. He's Russian. And the consequences of this were that he was kicked out of his hotel, he was denied access to any restaurant, uh, and he was basically left to sleep on the streets for a couple of nights. He wasn't even allowed to go into a bank to withdraw cash. Uh, and this And this kind of happened in real time. All of a sudden, he went from the week before being warmly welcomed to this country and Indians are famously really friendly to, to visitors uh, to this news circulated that he would be carrying the virus. Uh, and then, you know, he he was essentially left for dead. Like like he really was so hungry. He had to like forage uh, simply because no one wanted to go to go near him. So I do think like that's an extreme example, but there are consequences of people only having an appreciation of a topic 
by having just five minutes exposure to it in a month, right? And then that kind of forming their view. And I think, you know, talking about like your day-to-day job, right? You know, making sure that diversity and inclusion is a priority. I mean, something which my friends who work in HR have said is that if diversity inclusion is seen as something which is tagged on, right? You know, you only do it for one seminar a month then you're never going to have any lasting impact. And conversely, you might actually do damage, right? You might just enforce prejudices or you might feel that, uh, or, or you might feel that because I've attended a seminar, my work is done, I'm now no longer racist or I'm now no longer sexist. You, ha- you have to tackle from all different perspectives, you know? Uh, you can't just say like, this is the right thing to do and then like put everyone on mandatory trainings and have them, uh, force them to understand the importance of understanding uh, this like cultural sensitivity and diversity issues. You right. have to reach their motivations uh, and what they're interested in uh, to get them interested in learning about the topic themselves. And so do you mean that you look at this from the perspective of incentives, not necessarily telling people the things that you want to tell them, but rather framing this problem in terms of what do they want? Yes, exactly. This is a very a common influencing technique. Basically, you got to figure out the motivations of your audience. So for example, if you're talking to business uh, people, to executives, uh, you got to frame into like why diversity is important for your business. If you're talking to uh, people who are activists, then you can like touch them by heart. And this is important for society and for social good. So yeah, basically the, you have to shape your narrative and... Uh, to get them interested in the topic. And once they are interested, then they're going to be open-minded to learn more about it. I, I get the sense that there are all of these things that we take for granted as, you know, Westerners or people who come from more diverse societies who are used to talking about this stuff, that when you try to bring mm-hmm. it up with a Japanese person who's used to a very homogenous society, that they just have never heard of this before or been exposed to this before. Yeah, definitely. Uh, we get both, but we get uh, blank stares and pushback. <laughs> Um, even, uh, recently, like the conversation between equality and equity, mm. uh, there was a lot, a lot of people, uh, on, on the, on the Japanese side that were not familiar with the, the, the concept of equity, uh, and Japanese culture per se is very based on equality and treating everyone as equals. And even like you, you don't want anyone to be different. You want everyone to be, uh, right, right. Fitting like into the equals, same box. Right? Yeah. 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 Uh, so then when you talk about equity, uh, it kind of sound, sounds to them like unfair. You know, you're giving someone an unfair advantage because we're all equal. Mm. Uh, so we had to like bring this whole concept of like systemic inequality and like how we try equity is trying to compensate for systemic inequality mm. uh, for sh- like short term, at least, you know, uh, and this whole and this whole idea was very like uh uh, unknown uh, among the Japanese audience that we talked to. Uh, intersectionality, they haven't even heard yet. We mm. didn't even get there yet. It's too too advanced. Certainly my experience of talking about these things to some Japanese people is I'm surprised by how mainstream the idea of being anti-diversity is. Like, uh, uh, certainly the conversation in the UK is, yeah, even even someone that doesn't really care much about it, they'll go, yeah, I guess there's a problem. Right. And at least that's kind of like they're on the right track to realize that there may be some benefits in diversity. But I know I'm plenty of people, actually plenty of like quite serious, quite smart people going, I don't want to have foreigners in my organization because I think it's a bother. Like, how do you how do you, I mean, maybe you don't have this in your company because you're quite a progressive company. But how do you even start to have a conversation with someone who's predisposed 
to not having the conversation you want to have. Right. Can can you blame them when you tell them you're going to bring people uh, with completely different ideas, completely different backgrounds? Sometimes mm. they don't speak the language. It's just going to make everything more inefficient in their eyes, you know, like uh, right. we're going to have a lot more conflict as mendoxai, you know? Yeah, right. They're saying, yeah, can you stop bringing us these seminars on how to deal with conflict with foreigners? Can you just not bring the foreigners in the first place? <laughs> exactly, right? Right. Yeah. Especially when they don't see uh, the advantage of it. Yeah. So the thing that that we have to go about is how the benefits outweigh the the effort and, you know, uh, that we have to put in. Yeah. How having diverse teams will bring you like a lot more innovation or uh, eventually better business decisions and all that. So just to bring this back to uh, the main news topic this week, um, kind of foreigners getting up in arms and reacting and you know, being offended by being called not culturally literate or uh, by the Japanese media's portrayal of them as to blame. Um, it kind of reminds me of, of, you know, foreigners in Japan in general who try to deal with any of these issues, uh, things that they find offensive or, you know, failures of J Japanese cultural awareness in a very confrontational way which is very culturally non-Japanese. And in my experience, mm -hmm. I've always found like anytime in the moment that you try to call somebody out or you try to broach the topic in the moment, instead of creating cultural understanding or mutual respect and appreciation, what you do is you just make the Japanese person go, man, foreigners are angry. And so I'm kind of wondering like, if you have any advice for, for us angry Twitter gaijin. Like, what, how, how do we deal with these issues going forward? Can I jump in and just say delete your account? <laughs> <laughs> Other than that. I, I think all, all of us, and I'm, I'm going to include myself there because I've been there on the, uh, on the foreign rage community. Yeah. Um, we need to be a little bit more humble of how much we know and understand about multiple cultures. Mm. I think um, just because we are a minority in Japan and a lot of times in the corporate environment as well, uh, we assume that we understand what it what it's like to be discriminated against and what it's like to be a minority and what diversity is all about. Uh, and that couldn't be far further from the truth. Right. Um, so... Like a lot of times I keep still surprising myself with like nuances of Japanese culture that I had no idea and that every now and then I'm like, oh, I see. So now I understand a whole lot more of their perspective on, on certain topics. Um, and I was just overreacting or, you know, I was assuming that uh, I understand the culture when I don't. Right. Uh, and I think that's what we need to do a little bit more. We need to be more empathetic and open-minded. It is so easy to assume that you know what you're talking about, even just on like a language learning level. I remember so many times when I was making a Japanese mistake and not realizing I was making a Japanese mistake. But in the moment, I was 100% certain that it was their fault for not understanding what I was trying to say. And oh, one really really good thing that uh, we even have that at Mercari, uh, we call uh, Yasashi communication, going a little bit into the language issue that you're mentioning, uh, that we have this philosophy of uh, Japanese speakers and uh, non-Japanese speakers meeting halfway in the middle. Right. Uh, we don't want to have like a one, one single official language in the company. So we want to encourage everyone to meet in the middle and use Yasashi Nihongo or like very easy and kind Japanese and the same for English as well, like easy and kind English. Mm. Uh, so everyone can understand even if they're not fluent uh, on the language. And I think that makes you practice a lot more of like being careful of who is listening. Right. And 
how they are understanding you, that's your responsibility as well. That would have been great advice for all the TV shows who picked up that foreigners are to blame aspect. You know, if they had to yes. phrase that in a way that they were aware that foreigners would understand as they were doing it, it might have made them think twice about saying that. <laughs> exactly. I'm fascinated by this idea of meeting in the middle because it suggests that the work is to be done on both sides, that actually this isn't a question of you respecting my culture or uh, you coming into a company and understanding its norms, but rather acknowledging that every cultural norm has been made up by previous humans. And it's mm -hmm. in a constant state of flux and we can be agents in that change. Exactly, yeah. It's, it's not about, um, it, it's a relationship, like it's a two-way road, right? So I make the effort, you make the effort, so we meet in the middle. Um, and we don't have like, what is one thing that is right or one thing that is wrong It's a lot more, let me understand your side, you understand mine, and I'm sure we can get a better solution out of this. We, we have a, a, a really cool, uh, training as well. That's called the, uh, it, it used to be called cross-cultural communication training. And then we changed to just communication training because we realized it was even useful, like between different styles of communication within mm -hmm. the same culture. Yeah. And also the foreigners were getting really cross. <laughs> And it talks exactly about that, like different styles of uh, working and communication and how do you understand them is not how you change yours. It's just how you understand others. Right. And you are aware of the differences. Even that idea of understanding differences and meeting in the middle and I'll understand your side, you'll understand my side. I kind of suspect that that is our bias. That is our perspective as people who come from more diverse societies, because I've tried to approach this and to broach this with Japanese people so many times and go like, well, this is my side of it. I would like to hear your side of it and then figure out a way for us to understand each other. And they go, of course, that's what you want to do. You're a foreigner. <laughs> hey thank you very much for listening to this episode 60 wow of japan by river cruise if you don't want to miss out on the next twitter fight then don't forget to follow us at jbrc pod and thank you to our guest this week tuchi quintella it was great talking to you thank you uh, if anyone is interested in uh, joining a community of women in tech, uh, if you're a woman uh, learning to code or just interested in the community, please join Women Who Code Tokyo Chapter. Great. And thank you always for listening, and we will see you next week.